You are listening to the Fragment Podcast. This is the eighth episode, and it's the first part of a four-part series where I will talk about the 17th discussion of Al-Ghazali's Incoherence of the Philosophers and Ibn Rushd's uh, response to that controversial chapter of the book. This is the book and the particular chapter of the book for which Ghazali has been commonly blamed for supposedly destroying the mind of Islamic civilization. The scholarly consensus now is that that's a rather hyperbolic accusation. However, most of the examinations of the subject matter of that chapter of the book have been surface level, and therefore I'm going to attempt to examine it more closely, and that's going to require some time. <laughs> so this episode is quite a bit longer than probably a podcast episode should be, and the next three are also going to be. And they are there for anybody who is interested in actually taking a close look at what Ghazali actually says in the 17th discussion and what Ibn Rushd actually says in response to him uh, and, you know, basically what the intellectual context of that is, what the implications are, and trying to come to terms with this question it raises as to whether Muslims or anyone for that matter can believe that God acts in the world and at the same time maintain that nature is an ordered system. Um, there are a lot of things involved in the discussion of this chapter of the book and it should be interesting for anyone who likes to uh, listen and think and follow things through to their apparent logical conclusion. Of course, as always, or as usual, the podcast doesn't come to any <clears throat> definite conclusion, and I'm going to leave you also with a number of interesting questions that uh, you can ask and that I ask and I don't have the answers to myself. All right, so enjoy the podcast, and I hope that you continue listening for the next uh, three episodes that follow this, and you'll have hopefully comprehensively and deeply discussed this problem. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. We're discussing section 17 of the Incoherence of the Philosophers, or the Tahafat al-Falasafa, and it's probably the most famous discussion of the book, the one for reason of which Ghazali has, from some people, been blamed for destroying or collapsing or impeding or otherwise uh, having a negative effect on the Islamic a civilization when it comes to science and uh, everything intellectual. So we're going to take a look at it ourselves and you know maybe we can see from that whether those accusations are uh, warranted on the basis of uh, at least what the argument that he gives in the book. In discussion 17, Ghazali says the connection between what is habitually believed to be a cause or effect is not necessary. He says, with any two things, where this is not that and that is not this, and where neither the affirmation or the negation of one entails the affirmation or the negation of the other, it is not a necessity of the existence of the one that the other should exist or not exist. So the best way to get into this is look at the examples, I suppose, and then we'll go back into the details. 
So, for example, he says quenching of thirst and drinking. Quenching of thirst is something he's calling as habitually believed to be an effect of drinking, where drinking is habitually believed to be the cause of the quenching of thirst. Satiety and eating, where one satisfaction is considered to be habitually believed to be, as he says, the effect of eating, and eating is the habitually believed to be the cause of satisfaction, satiety. Death and decapitation for a gory one. He says, right, that it's habitually believed that death is the effect of having your head cut off and that having your head cut off is a cause or causes death. Uh, these things he considers to, he, he calls, you know, things which are habitually believed to be connected as cause and effect. And he says that the connection is not necessary. It doesn't have to be the case. It's not impossible that somebody get their head cut off and yet not die. It's not impossible that someone eat and not be satisfied. And it's not impossible that someone drink and not have their thirst quenched. Or reverse, of course, it's not impossible that somebody die without their head getting cut off. Also, it's not impossible for somebody to be satisfied without eating. And it's not impossible for somebody's thirst to be quenched without drinking. So all the connections between these things in either direction are not necessary, meaning that it's possible to, for it to be otherwise. And then he says that their connection, they say, is due to God, who creates them side by side. And it is not to its being necessary in itself, incapable of separation. For then, therefore, God can create satiety without eating, decapitation without death, and so forth. Uh, he says, for example, if uh, fire touches cotton, it's not necessary that the cotton burn uh, because it's God who creates the burning in the cotton and creates the fire, as he says here, side by side. Really the insight and the critique that Ibn Rushd brings because that's really the question. What is fire if it doesn't burn? That's the question that's brought against Ghazali's view here, as we'll see. But I want to go back then to look at the specific thing that he says here underneath all these examples. He says, with any two things where this is not that and that is not this, and where neither the affirmation or negation of one entails the affirmation of the negation of the other, then the connection between them is not necessary. Okay, well, first of all, let's look at it in terms of fire. If it's the case that fire is burning, then that means that it's a case where this fire is that. To be fire is to burn. In that case, that would fall under the category of things which Ghazali here is saying are necessarily connected. And so that's why that question will arise and be important here. Is it the case that fire and burning is not a case of this being that? But we'll go back to this because Ghazali puts it in two ways. He says where this is not that and that is not this. And he also adds where neither the affirmation nor the negation of the one entails the affirmation or the negation of the other or vice versa. So he, he says it in two ways. And I think he does that because we actually have two ways in which things can be distinct. One we call an extensional and the other intentional. So... 
the intention of a thing is the concept or the meaning of it. And we can say that uh, something is intentionally distinct if, if it differs in meaning. Uh, and we'll say that something is extensionally distinct if it just differs in reference. We're working with the difference between meaning or what they sometimes call sense. Frege is a philosopher that put the distinction in these terms, distinguishing between sense and reference. So if we, for example, distinguish between a Superman and Clark Kent, and we say, uh, you know, that Lois Lane, like Superman's girlfriend, doesn't know that Superman is Clark Kent, then we have an identity uh, between two things which are t intentionally distinct, right? Because it's the same person. The same guy that is Superman is the guy that is Clark Kent. Um, so extensionally, right, we'll say this is that, right? Clark Kent is Superman. But it's not really the case that the affirmation of the one entails the affirmation or the negation of the other, one might argue, because if you tell Lois Lane that, if you tell her that Superman is here, she wouldn't necessarily um, be able to conclude from that fact that, that Clark Kent is here. For the reason that she doesn't know that Clark Kent is Superman. Uh, that's because the concept of Superman doesn't entail the concept of Clark Kent, even though the two things are identical. And the example that Frege used when he made the distinction is between the morning star and the evening star, because the morning star is the one that, you know, you see the brightest star in the morning, and the evening star is the brightest star that you see in the evening sky, but both of them are, are just the same planet, the planet Venus. So before, people may not have known that they're the same, so that when somebody discovers that the morning star is the evening star, they actually learn something new. And the reason is because there's, this, there's a distinction between the sense of morning star and evening star. They're not intentionally the same, even though they're extensionally the same. So Ghazali here has covered his basis, and he's basically talking about both types of sameness, where this is not that and that is not this. Which I think he, by which I think he means extensional sameness and distinction. And he says, where neither the affirmation or the negation of one entails the affirmation and the negation of the other, which, by which I think he means distinction in sense or meaning. Maybe that was a little bit too much detail, but I think it might be important for thinking through what comes and asking what he means here. But he's basically saying that anything which is not the same in one of these two ways, the connection between the two is not necessary. If this is that, if Clark Kent really is Superman, then if Superman's there, it's necessary that Clark Kent is there. On the other hand, uh, let's say, if, if Superman has the same meaning as the guy that wears blue tights and a red cape with a big S, and those two mean the same thing, then if one is there, then the other is there. If Superman's in the room, then a guy with a cape and blue tights is also in the room because they mean the same thing. Otherwise, the connection's not necessary. Anything other than that could be separated according to this. So he says, we say it is possible for the cotton to contact fire without burning or for it to burn without contacting fire. Obviously, that's because fire and cotton are not the same thing. There can be, there can be fire contacting cotton. That's one thing. 
and the cotton burning, that's a separate thing. So you can have the contact of fire to cotton without the burning of the cotton, since those are two different things. They're neither identical, nor do they mean the same thing. So one does not follow necessarily from the other. Then he's going to consider different positions opposed to his view. He says he's going to consider two positions. But as we go through, I think we might see that there's actually three positions. So I'll leave it for us to, to decide. And that'll be important because we want to make sure we consider all the possible positions. Okay, the first position, as he describes it, is the position that the agent, right, the one who actually does the burning, is the fire alone. It being an agent by nature and not choice, and incapable of refraining from acting according to its nature after contacting a receptive substratum. So this language is coming from the philosopher of physical theory. In this case, the cotton will be the substratum of the burning, right? It's the thing in which the burning comes to be in this process. And it's a receptive substratum. That means that the nature of cotton is such that it has the potential to burn on contact with fire. You know, obviously, if we take a piece of steel and touch it to fire, it won't burn because the substratum is not receptive of burning, right? It doesn't have the same nature as cotton so that it doesn't have the potential to catch on fire like cotton does. So according to this first position, fire is by itself the agent or the cause of the burning and it causes the cotton to burn by its own nature not by a choice that means that there's no possibility for fire to not somehow to like decide not to burn the cotton right when it contacts fire and so as long as it's contacting another substance which will be the substratum or the receiver or the patient right because we have now agent and patient the agent is the one that acts and the patient is the one that is acted on in this theory of physics and in this case, the patient is the cotton. And uh, as long as the agent contacts a patient, which is receptive to a certain action of that agent, then that action will necessarily occur, right? Without any possibility of it not occurring. So that way, the fire itself by itself is the cause. So if we ask, what is the cause of the burning? Just the fire. And in, 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 in such a way that it's necessary and it cannot not cause the burning. The burning has to happen. It's impossible for it to not happen, to the cotton anyway. The second position is different from the first one. We can think about the first position because when they say that the fire is the agent by itself, we might think of this as a, as a rather materialistic uh, uh, metaphysics of nature because all the causal power and explanatory power is sort of put onto the fire, right? And also the passive or the receptive qualities of the substratum. If someone might ask in our context, you know, are not the laws of nature or the laws of physics also a cause? So if we want to explain the burning, do we not have to just point to the fire and the cotton, but we also have to explain that 
according to the laws of physics, when this kind of process contacts this thing, such and such results, and we want to think that there are some universal laws of physics that sort of are behind this, then it would seem arguable that it's not quite right to say that the fire by itself is the cause, but rather there's a certain kind of order of nature which is required and which is part of the explanation and then the cause. In terms of the philosopher physics, that would come, that kind of idea or intuition would, would come in the form of the second position here, where the idea here is that the temporal events, like events that happen in time, things that change like cotton burning when it touches fire, emanate or follow from eternal principles, right? Eternal principles, things we might call laws of nature. What for them are basically the order of nature. Specifically, uh, according to that theory, uh, the temporal events are kind of determined by the bestower of forms, which they call the act, also call the act of intellect. And this is, um, in that cosmology, the intellect which is associated with the sphere of the moon, right? <laughs> but that's another uh, topic. It's basically what we should simplify it here and just say that there is a kind of a metaphysical principle which gives form to matter and when things occur in the world, this metaphysical principle, the active intellect, is responsible for the form that matter takes and it's, it's responsible for the order in which matter uh, changes. And the only thing that other events do is prepare matter for the reception of these forms. So burning and the contact that cotton has with fire is a temporal event, right? So the fire is a temporal thing. It basically is an event because fire is a, an action, right? It, it is burning, let's say. And then uh, for that to come into contact with fire is another event. And then the cotton beginning to burn is a, is a third event. So these temporal events, they what they do is they prepare the matter for the reception of the forms, right? So there's a form, let's say the form of ash or carbon dioxide or whatever, that you know comes from the active intellect and it's in virtue of that form that there is a such thing as ash and carbon and carbon dioxide or whatever results from cotton burning. According to this theory, the contact of fire with the cotton, all it does is prepare the matter of the cotton, right? It prepares that substratum to be receptive to the form, right? It sort of makes way for it to receive that form. And then the form actually comes from this, this active intellect, basically the order of nature. So that's a second position that would be opposed to Ghazali's position. And he's going to try to examine and respond to both. According to the second position, things proceed from these eternal principles by necessity and not by choice, the way light shines from the sun. So the analogy that they give from the sun is that. So the sun shines and then there are many different things on the ground which are affected by the sun. And the way in which those things are affected by the sunlight differs according to the nature of that thing. 
So some things melt in the sunlight and other things harden, right? So if I put ice out in the sunlight and I put some wet clay out in the sunlight, the ice will melt and the clay will solidify. Some things will turn, like if I put a, some cloth out and leave it out in the sun, it'll turn white, right? And the color will fade. And if I put some, if I, if I sit out in the sun, I'll get darker. So things respond to the same action on the basis of the difference in their um, passive natures, their, what, what they're receptive of as a substratum. But temporal events can prepare the matter. So the analogy there would be exactly that. If I have some cloth or clothes that I have inside under the shade and I bring them out into the sun and let them sit there and then they fade, uh, we would say that the sunlight is really the cause of the fading. But my moving the clothes into the sunlight from out of the shade only prepares the matter to receive the form or to receive the effect of the sunlight, right? So in that case, the, the analogy here would be to say that the sun is the cause and my action of moving those things out into the sun is just a preparation of that cloth to receive the effect of the sun. So by that kind of analogy, you can understand what they're saying, that anything which is a temporal event, we can compared to this action of me moving cloth out into the sunlight. But the active intellect and its relation to temporal events and its relation to matter is here compared to the way that the sun shines on all the things. So the active intellect gives order because the active intellect is an intellect, right? And the order of the world and the order of nature is an intellectual order. So the idea here is that the idea uh, behind the order of nature comes from an intellect, as all ideas must come from an intellect. And so the active intellect is the actual cause of the order of anything that occurs in nature, whereas the temporal events only prepare each other, prepare things, right? Uh, things sort of interact with each other and when they're, they're in motion and they act on each other to situate them in such a way that they can be affected by the active intellect in different ways. So in that case, the active intellect is actually the cause. So in a certain sense, the active intellect is kind of like Ghazali's, plays the role that Ghazali thinks uh, God plays in, in essentially being the only cause of everything, except for the fact that um, the philosopher, as he describes it, think that the things proceed from the active intellect by necessity, not by choice. The active intellect doesn't choose or decide to do this or that. Things follow from it by necessity, like the way that light shines from the sun. So the particular nature of the material things that re receive the act of the active intellect, uh, their different natures play a role in determining how they are affected by the active intellect. But the, act, the intellect is actually the, the actual act of cause, where they are just, you know, sort of, we, sometimes they call it receptive causes. Yeah. Okay. A lot of explanation there from the background. Against this first position, right? So the first position was the position that fire is itself by itself the cause of burning. And what he gives here is an argument that, that Ibn Sina and Al-Farabi would also give 
against this position because they also are not, they don't adopt this position exactly. The only proof that fire is the cause of burning is the observation of burning at the time of the contact of fire, right? So the only evidence he's saying that we have that fire is causing the burning is that we witness the burning of the cotton when the fire touches it or with it. But he then says that the existence of a thing with another thing does not prove that it exists by it. Or as we could put it here, the existence of B with A does not, does not prove that B exists because of A. And so he gives this example. And the example he gives is that imagine a blind man, a man who's blind from birth, um, then gets his eyes cured. So they remove the film from his eye, I suppose, because he's talking about like a cataract or something. Imagine that he has the film removed from his eye, and so the first time in his life he's able to see. And if this happens in daylight, Ghazali says, the man would think that the cause of colors, or the cause of his seeing colors, is simply that his eye is healthy and that there's a colored object in front of him. And he would think that, right, given that his eye is healthy and given that there's a colored object in front of him, it's impossible that he not see colors, that the seeing of colors necessarily follows from that. But then, Ghazali says, when the sun sets and it becomes dark, he will realize that there was another thing which was actually the cause and the thing that was really the essential factor there, that was light, which he wasn't aware of until the sun set. And so the idea here is that because of the fact that we continually experience certain things with other things, that leads us to believe that they are existing because of those things. Uh, and that can fool us into thinking that there's nothing else behind that. Therefore, Ghazali says here, Whence can the opponent safeguard himself against there being among the principles of, of existence grounds and causes from which these observable events emanate when a contact between them takes place, admitting that these principles, however, are permanent, never ceasing to exist, that they are not moving bodies that would set, and that were they either to cease to exist or to set, we would, we would apprehend the, disassoci the dissociation between the temporal events and would understand that there is a cause beyond what we observe. Which is just to say in maybe more contemporary terms, right, <clears throat> that the order in the events that we experience around us are explained not just by the conjunction of those events with each other, but an underlying set of natural laws, which is eternal and not changing. And that those natural laws set in order and determine the events, right? So it's not simply that B uh, is caused by A because B happens with A, but rather uh, there's a third thing which is not an object and it's not temporal but is actually some kind of system of nature or the order of nature or an abstract principle which necessitates that uh, every time a occurs b occurs and that it's that eternal principle which is actually uh, the causal power behind 
the order that we observe, right? And that's basically an argument that would lead to the second position. So we saw that's what the second position is, that uh, temporal events emanate from eternal principles. Now, remember, Ghazali's issue with the second position is just that, according to the second position, which is really the, the position of Al-Farabi and Ibn Sina, these uh, eternal principles, or in this case, the active intellect, is something which acts of necessity and not by choice. And so that's important for Ghazali because he thinks that God can alter the order of nature precisely because God acts by will and not by necessity. So that second position, remember, was that things proceed necessarily from God. And differences between one and another temporal thing are due to differences in the receptive material. So that means that as long as the fire is actually fire, and as long as the cotton is actually cotton, then the cotton cannot possibly touch the fire without burning. And that's because fire has a nature and cotton has a nature. And there cannot really be an order of nature unless there is, uh, let's say, a definition or an essence of what one thing is and what another thing is, which determines necessarily how they behave and operate under various circumstances. If it weren't for that, then there would just be, you know, random chaos and there wouldn't be an order of nature at all. So, in other words, another way to say it is right that if we have Abraham going into the fire, <clears throat> right, and then the fire not burning him, then it must be the case that the fire in that case ceases to be fire or that Abraham's flesh ceases to be flesh, but is turned into some other kind of thing. Because there is a such thing as what fire is, and there is a such thing as what flesh is, and given what fire is, and given what flesh is, it's necessary that if fire touches flesh, flesh will burn. If it turns out to be that fire touches flesh and the flesh doesn't burn, according to the argument, then either the fire is not actually being fire at that moment, or the flesh is not actually being flesh at that moment. And if it were otherwise, then there wouldn't be uh, such a thing as what fire is, and there wouldn't be such a thing as what flesh is, and anything could do anything at all, there wouldn't be any such thing as what anything is, and there would be basically no order in nature and things would be unintelligible. That is basically how Ibn Rushd pushes his objection against Ghazali, right? But this is the second position. And now Ghazali, um, his opposition to that is just on that, that point that things proceed necessarily from God, right? Things happen from God the only way they can, and God can't do it differently. Ghazali doesn't believe that, he doesn't like that conclusion, and he says, we do not concede that the principles do not act by choice, and that God does not act voluntarily. Uh, the principle is basically God here. That's to say the ultimate eternal cause of the order in the universe. And he is now maintaining that God acts voluntarily. God acts by choice. Right? This requires us to ask and say something about what he means by God acting voluntarily. Because uh, he agrees with Ibn Rushd and Ibn Rushd makes this uh, you know, objection against him repeatedly in this book that God is eternal and so totally different from temporal creatures like human beings. 
So the human being has will and acts voluntarily and chooses, Ibn Rush says, but this means that the human being has needs uh, because he chooses to fulfill what he needs and his choice is determined by, our choices are determined by the things that we need and we choose what's better for us. But God is all powerful and has no needs, so it doesn't make sense for him to choose what's better for him There's no because no, there's nothing that's better for him and nothing that he needs. Uh, also, a choice, Ibn Rush says, is something that's done in time. So we choose something and then, we, then we're done with our, our choice. Once, let's say I go to the you know, restaurant and I order some food, right? And after I'm done ordering and I eat it, now I'm not wanting it anymore, right? So that means change. Well, God doesn't have any needs or desires because he's all powerful and he doesn't change. So uh, that means that will and the act of will and, and voluntary action and choice as we experience it as human beings, can't apply to God. And Ghazali agrees with this. So uh, that means that we have to ask, well, what does Ghazali mean by will? That is necessary at this point, but we are not able to deal with that now because that is a, uh, a topic which he um, works out in the first discussion. So we'll put that aside for now, except for that we will just concentrate on this part that his difference and his objection to the philosopher here is primarily focused on this question of whether or not God acts voluntarily. Yes, and as he says, we refuted them on this in, in, the, in the first discussion on the world's creation. So he said, God creates the burning through will when cotton contacts fire. And since God creates the burning through will, the cotton not burning on the contact with fire is possible. It's not impossible. We will go back to discuss briefly Ghazali's conception of God's will and how he understands God's will in a way which is compatible with God's being eternal and not having any needs. So he definitely doesn't think that God has a will like the human being's will, um, but he does have a different conception of God's will and then a different argument to prove that God actually acts uh, by will. All we can say here, though, is that the implication that God creates, for example, in this case, burning in the cotton uh, when it contacts fire through will, is that it's possible for the cotton not to burn on contact with fire. So the only thing that we know so far here, uh, in this context anyway, what Ghazali means by God creating, burning, and creating what he creates by an act of will is that it's possible that God created differently than he did before, or it's always possible that he had, might have created it differently than he did. So whenever you touch cotton to fire and it burns, Ghazali would say, it is possible that the cotton had not burned, right, if God had willed the cotton not to burn. So that's what we have in terms of Ghazali's uh, resistance to the two positions which he describes here. We'll see later, and we had sort of already foreshadowed this, the kind of uh, horrified reaction that the philosopher will have to this, uh, to this position, and Ghazali is fully aware of that, and he himself describes that, and then he will give his own uh, response to that reaction. Basically that, as, as we said, if that's the case, then oh my gosh, or nature would be totally unintelligible 
and anything could happen and it's completely chaos and you know I don't even know when I shut the door of this office maybe all my kids turned into animals or my wife turned into a piece of fruit because anything could happen and there's no order because God can do anything that's what they um, freak out about right <laughs> so he has an Uh, his own response to that and uh, what our question will be then whether his response is, is adequate and does it adequately underwrite an, an order of nature that concludes the first part of our four-part series on the 17th discussion of the incoherence of the philosophers this is only the beginning so please stay tuned for the second and the third and the fourth part of this series Uh, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.